Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. I'm going to read briefly this morning from Zechariah chapter 8. It's there at the very end of your Old Testament. Not the last book, but the second to last book. Just before Malachi, just before Matthew. I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. And I'm going to read down through verse 23. Zechariah 8, verse 7 through 23. Zechariah has been called by the Holy Spirit to go and preach to the returned exiles. They are there in the land of Jerusalem rebuilding the temple. But they have lost heart. They've been distracted. They've been discouraged. And so Haggai and Zechariah have been sent by the Holy Spirit to stir them up to return them to the work of building the temple. And so Zechariah, in the first half of his book, has a series of visions intended to encourage the hearts of the people that they would give themselves to the work. Now, here in the second half of his book, he has a series of sermons, as it were, in which he has a word from the Lord, which he preaches to the church to encourage them to do the work. Here then, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 7 through 23. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 7 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, You who have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. For before these days there were no wages for man, nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men, everyone against his neighbor. But now... I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts, for the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these, and it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear Let your hands be strong, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent, so again in these days I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things you shall do. Speak, each man, the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor, and do not love a false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, The fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Amen and amen. The prophet is not ignorant of the great challenges the church faces in building the temple. Throughout this little message, he lists off the challenges that surround them, in which they have enemies who are actively resisting the building of the temple. You can read of that in Ezra and Nehemiah. There are those who wish to oppress the church, who wish to keep us from engaging in our ministry and our service to others. But also, this, this prophet acknowledges there are problems within us. That there is strife and discord and injustice among believers. That they afflict and hurt one another and keep us from working together for the kingdom. But Zechariah also notices that the church is small. We are few in number. We are weak and not fit for the task. And yet, against all these challenges, Zechariah offers us one profound and sufficient hope. We have God. God is on our side. And He is determined to build His church. He is determined to save sinners. He is determined to reach the ends of the earth with His gospel and no one and nothing, not our sin, not our enemies, not our weakness and our insufficiency, which has been so evident, can stop him from saving sinners and sanctifying saints. He shall surely save. With this confidence in our hearts, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We're going to see this same principle played out in Acts 17. That there is nothing in Thessalonica or in Berea that can stop the gospel from building the church of Jesus Christ. This morning's sermon is from Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace 
And gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. These are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command from for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Amen. Amen. When I was just a little boy, one of my first jobs on the farm was to feed the calves, the youngest calves, the earliest calves who had just come into the barn from the field from their moms. And I was dreadfully shocked to discover that calves were not born knowing how to nurse from a bottle. Some of you parents with young children may have discovered, to your surprise, that children aren't born knowing how to eat or knowing how to nurse. They need to be taught this most fundamental skill essential to life and to flourishing. Interestingly enough, those of you who have older kids might still find that it is still a struggle to teach them how to eat, or at least eat correctly. But I remember very vividly one of those first times I was in the calf pen, and I was holding this warm, delicious bottle of milk, and I walked up to the calf and I offered the bottle to the calf. And it just looked at me. So I stepped forward and the calf stepped back. So I stepped forward and the calf ran away. And so I chased it. And around and around the pen we went, me trying to offer the bottle to the calf. But it had no interest. Finally, I, I maneuvered the calf into the corner of the pen and trapped it so it couldn't run away anymore. And I stuck the bottle in its face. And the calf turned its head this way. And so I stuck the bottle over there. And the calf turned its head this way. And so I stuck the bottle over there. And Finally, I managed to get the end of the bottle right up against its nose. And wouldn't you know it, she just head-butted the bottle right to the floor. Finally, in frustration, I turned to my dad and I said, how do you get the dumb calf to drink the milk? He looked at me with his big smile and a twinkle in his eye and said, you have to convince the calf there's milk in the bottle. And he picked up the bottle off the floor and he showed me how to drip milk out of the end of the bottle under the nose of the calf so that it licks its nose and connects. Warm, yummy milk is in that bottle. 
My friends, we have a loving, patient Father who knows how to draw us through our sin, through our sorrows, to his healing grace. Who knows how to drip into our souls his love so that we might endure to the end, that we might be built up and nourished into the image of his Son, sanctified and made holy through every sin and sorrow, ready for heaven. You see, the truth of God for us this morning, the good news from our text, is that Jesus makes all things new. Jesus is renovating the heavens and the earth. And even closer to home, he's renovating you. Jesus is making all things new, especially you. And so, my friends, let us share his scriptures with one another. Let us share the scriptures in our relationships, in our marriages, in our homes, in our friendships, and especially in the membership of the church. Let us be faithful to share the love and grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that through his ministry to us and through us, He is making all things new. Let's look at our text this morning. I want to begin by noticing that Paul and Silas and Timothy are journeying on from Philippi without Luke. Do you see the change in the pronouns there? Going into Philippi, it was we, we, we. Coming out of Philippi, it is they, they, they. Luke has remained in Philippi. This becomes significant when we arrive in verses 14 and 15, so I'll let it be. For now, we notice that Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrive in Thessalonica. And there, according to his custom, Paul steps into the pulpit of the synagogue and begins, as he has always done, with reaching the Jew first. He reasons with them from the scriptures on three consecutive Sabbaths. He explains to them and demonstrates to them one simple truth. The Christ had to suffer and rise again. Announcing to them, proclaiming to them that this Jesus of Nazareth was in fact that Christ. The Christ who had to suffer and rise again. My friends, this remains the cardinal truth of human history. It is a striking one, but news so good we must not pass it over. You see, Jesus had to suffer. It was a necessity. We have not fully grasped who Christ is or what he has done until we have grasped the utter necessity of his sufferings. Our tears cannot atone for our sin. The great grief that we feel, the guilt and the shame that washes over us does not purchase for us forgiveness. As the Puritans liked to reflect long ago, even the tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of Christ. My friends, we were conceived in sin, Psalm 51. We were born in sin, Romans chapter 3. We are a ruined creature and we must have a sinless Christ who suffers for us. He had to. We couldn't pay the price ourselves. 
Our sin has so greatly indebted us to the glorious God in his holy wrath that we could not have possibly appeased him or purchased his love. We were conceived objects of wrath. We have grown up objects of wrath. We have walked contrary to his grace and despised his love. Who here has come into this room sinless today? I don't mean the sins that have washed over you this week. I mean the sins that have soaked your soul this morning. That have soaked your soul since this service began. My friends, we are in need of a Christ to suffer for us. But so too we are in need of a Christ who will rise from the dead for us. It is a startling thing that after all our centuries on this earth, the one thing humans haven't overcome yet is death. It is striking, isn't it? For all of our medical advancement, we can produce a vaccine in under a year. We haven't found a vaccine for death yet. We can do extraordinary things with medicine, with technology, but we cannot cure death. We cannot bring life from death. We need Jesus. Paul stands up in the pulpit Sabbath after Sabbath. You need Jesus. There is no other truth. There is no greater truth. This is the beating heart of the good news. That we need Jesus and in Jesus we have the Christ we need. This Jesus whom Paul preached is that Christ He did come and suffer for you. He did come and die for you. He was indeed raised from the dead for you. In him is life and life abundant. But Paul was not merely content to make known this truth, to simply announce this truth. Notice again Luke's verbs, that he reasoned with them. There was an engagement in which they exchanged ideas in which they set forth their questions and their curiosity. This gospel presentation wasn't simply a monologue. I remember the funny story of a well-known evangelist walking up to a total stranger and saying, Do you have any questions about Jesus? And the person said, I thought evangelistic presentations were just monologues. I thought you guys just lectured us. And it was an insightful moment to realize there should be reasoning between believer and unbeliever. There should be a welcoming of questions and of seeking that we cultivate the curiosity of the human soul. But specifically in verse 2 with regards to the scriptures, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The chief instrument on which Paul depended for his presentation was the very word of God. That God himself made himself known in these pages. That this is the voice and power of God unto salvation. And so in verse 3, Paul both explains and demonstrates the necessity of the Christ. This too is essential performance in preaching. In fact, I remember sitting in my seminary class and Dr. Pruto would say, when you make a point, And this is kind of weird because I'm giving away some of my infrastructure, so we'll see how many of you guys can't get past this distraction. Every point should follow this pattern. Explain it, 
illustrate it and apply it. And if you've listened carefully as I move through my sermon, I will reference you to a verse. I will explain the content of that verse. I will pull an illustration, if I happen to think of one, and I will apply it to you. You will see me do that pattern. I hope it doesn't distract you. But this is the pattern that Paul here employs. He turns to the Word of God and he explains the meaning of the text. This is what we must do for one another. We must turn to the Word of God and explain the truths and the riches found in that page. What is the reality offered to us in the Scriptures? But secondly, we must demonstrate. We must illustrate. We must manifest the reality of Christ in His need. Let me say it this way, my friends. One of the greatest deterrents to our evangelistic efforts is our self-righteousness. Our inability as Christians to admit that I preach the same Christ I so desperately need. That we do not frame our offering of Christ as a living demonstration that I need Christ. This is what Paul does in the synagogue Sabbath after Sabbath. Here is the truth in the scriptures. Let me explain it to you. But what is more, here is the truth of Jesus. Let me demonstrate it to you. Let me show you love as I lay down my life for you and Christ laid down his life for me. As I show you my need and confess freely my weakness, my sinfulness, that we together would grasp, I have found Christ. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, which I have so often quoted, we are beggars telling beggars where to find bread. My friends, let us demonstrate our need for Christ that we might have standing to demonstrate to others their need for Christ. By employing the word of God to preach the necessity of Jesus, Paul wins some. In verse 4, it says that some of them, meaning specifically the Jews, were persuaded. Not many, not all, but some. He got some of the Jews to be persuaded from the word of God that they needed Jesus. But secondly, he persuaded a great multitude of devout Greeks, the God-fearers, the Greek speakers who hadn't gone the full distance of becoming a Jew. They were there in the synagogue, permitted to listen and to worship as devout God-fearers and Greeks. And it was they who received powerfully and persuasively the preaching of Paul. And Luke throws in there, not a few leading women. That among the devout Greeks, most prominently was a powerful movement of the Spirit among the leading women. And they would switch sides, these devout Greeks, especially the leading women, and they would join Paul and Silas. Being united to the church and embracing the mission of making Christ known. But what is the difference between them? What is it that makes it but a few, Greek, a few Jews, but so many Greeks, especially leading women? Luke leaves the distinction to our theology. It is the sovereign Holy Spirit who has selected in whom he will work. You see, this is the call that we should preach broadly to all who will listen. 
Because we do not know which ones will answer. We command all, come and worship. Because we do not know which ones will come. We say to all, here is the love of God in Christ. Because we do not know which ones will come. We rest on the work of the Sovereign Spirit. By opening up the Scriptures, explaining them, demonstrating them, the Spirit is pleased to empower those Scriptures to the salvation of sinners. Where does the strength lie? Where does the power lie? In that union between the Word and the Spirit. That the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ should in sweet harmony and concert with each other produce such a melody that sinners would be drawn to repent. This is what Paul exemplifies for us, my friends. That we too would believe that the Word of God works to bring about salvation. That we would believe that the Spirit of God is pleased to bless the Scriptures to salvation. The reason... This is so imperative to us, is I fear that if you are anything like me, you are so often tempted in your marriages, in your parenting, in your friendship, to degrade yourself to believing that it is your shrewd, cunning, clever conversation that will win the day. That you will fall into the pit of believing that it is your eloquence, of believing it is your passion, of believing that it is your obedience. How many of you have fallen prey to that age-old game in relationships where you say, look at how much I have done for you and how little you have done for me. And my friends, such an exchange is not the gospel. Indeed, Christ has called us to bear a cross, to sacrifice ourselves for one another, and the persuasive power of the gospel is not in our self-righteousness. The persuasive gospel is not found in our obedience, our eloquence, our passion. It is found in the simple truths of Scripture set forth in the Spirit's power. This is a humbling thing, especially for a preacher. Because I'd love to believe that my learning can make you a Christian. I'd love to believe that my well-prepared sermon is what it takes. My friends, it is not so. It is the Scriptures under the power of the Spirit. And of this we must be persuaded if we are to sanctify our spouse. If we are to sanctify our children. If we are to sanctify our co-workers and our neighbors. We do not lay on them the law and demand them obedience. We serve them Christ and wait for the Spirit to persuade them. Sadly, as we have ourselves tasted and seen so many times in our lives, not everyone is persuaded. And indeed, to the contrary, in Thessalonica, those who are not persuaded become envious in verse 5. And they are both envious and evil. Being jealous of Paul's popularity, being jealous of his success among the Greek speakers, he and the evil ones proceed into the marketplace. 
to gather up a mob and to bring about a riot and to go and to attack the house of Jason, hoping to land on Paul and Silas and Timothy. They are unable to do so. They are not there for reasons unknown to me. So instead, their hands fall on Jason and some of the brethren who are gathered there. It is likely that Jason's house is not merely the hotel, or perhaps not even the hotel at all, but the church building. Jason's house is likely where there is prayer and worship. They invade that sacred service. They seize Jason and the brothers and drag them into the marketplace, screaming, These ones have given shelter and welcome. Indeed, they have given a foothold to these men that we wished to find. They have two causes to their violence, two reasons in which they are so desperately opposed to Paul's preaching. Notice first in verse 6, those who have turned the world upside down have come here. There is a violent reaction to the gospel because as this crowd in Thessalonica understand all so well, the gospel turns the world upside down. Interestingly enough, one of my children in family worship this last week observed, it actually turns the world right side up. But of course, if you're addicted to this upside down world, it feels upside down. Or as Rosaria Butterfield called it, it's a train wreck. Our world comes smashing into the cross of Christ. And everything we have built based on our ego, based on our pride, based on our self-seeking, falls to ash and to dust. We lie in the ruins of an old existence, and our whole world is upside down. Indeed, it is the backwards economy. For years now, this American nation has built all of its enterprises on the belief that self-seeking is good for everyone. It has been rooted into the fiber of us, And yet, my friends, we are here as Christians to turn the world upside down. It is service to others that is so good to the economy. It is service to others that is so good for the civic order. If only we could have those in power and those under power dedicated to the well-being of others and not the seeking of self. What a world upside down we would have. What a tremendous experience, and yet it is frightening. It is frightening to put your existence and your well-being in the hands of others and to seek not yourself, but the well-being of others. The world is upside down, and it is frightening. This is what the good news does to you. It forbids you from self-seeking. It forbids you from self-glorifying and all of those natural fleshly appetites that war within us. We are summoned to kill and to slay and the world looks upside down. It is frightening. And so we react with violence. How many of you find it hard to pray? I remember a pastor in my childhood saying, I wanted to know how vigorous of a prayer I was, so I kept a journal. I kept a record. Day after day after day, I couldn't get over 29 minutes. So great is the weakness of our flesh. 
So great is the distractions of our mind and our heart. When was the last time you tried to pray for more than 29 minutes? Let alone tried and failed. The world upside down is a perilous place in which we live not for ourselves, in which we don't give ourselves relentlessly to the siren call of this city that says, work, work, work until you're dead. I've heard it too. And my friends, it is not what Christ calls us to. He calls us to rest and to peace. And that world upside down is a dangerous place. But secondly, they respond in violence because they are announcing another king, verse 7. Likewise, the crowd cries out, they have come here acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They rightly understand that Paul and Silas and Timothy are not merely Romans. They are also citizens of a heavenly kingdom with a superior loyalty to which Caesar must bow and to which Caesar must bend. There is a conviction that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is contrary to the law and order of the world today. My friends, we are coming nearer and nearer that day, are we not? We are already beset by this question, are we not? Shall we heed the decrees of Caesar? Or shall we proclaim there is another king, Christ, and for him we will live? For him we will love, and for him we will die. I beg you to be warned of two things. First, do not be afraid. Do not be unaware. Know that the coming conflict between America and the church can be averted, but if it is not, the church will win. Christ will triumph. The decrees of Caesar fall before the commands of King Christ. But secondly, my friends, I also urge you beware. We don't fight this fight with loud cries in the streets. We do not use the weapons of this world against them. We use the tools of the kingdom which are love and grace. And if it comes to blows, we lay down our lives. We have come into this kingdom to be crucified with Christ, to lay down our lives for the salvation of others, to say that Christ is my king and Caesar is not, is not to take up arms against Caesar. It is to walk under the shadow of the cross and to be indeed seekers of peace through the cross of Christ. My friends, this, you may see, is a perilous place to be. The world upside down. When we love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. In which we offer that as the answer to oppression and injustice is a dangerous place to be. And a hard place in which to linger. And yet it is the call of gospel ministry. To love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. And to see that empires fall, kingdoms come crashing down when the church loves. And when the church preaches love. This is what we are summoned to do, my friends. 
to offer them the scriptures, explaining the love of God in Christ, demonstrating the love of God in Christ, that he had to suffer and be raised from the dead, and that we too must suffer and we will be raised from the dead. And this is what is persuasive. This is what is so compelling. This is what wins this world out of its wickedness and into faith in Jesus Christ. When this violence surges against Paul and Silas and Timothy and Thessalonica, they realize they have to go. For the gospel ministry to continue, they have to depart. And so Paul and Silas are taken in verse 10 and led away. Jason and the others pay security, a down payment on the promise that Paul will depart from the city. They can only go free on condition that they deliver Paul out of the city. They keep their word. They fulfill their promise. They achieve their security. And Paul and Silas go. Notice who does not. Timothy. Like bread comes along the trail, they are leaving off in Philippi, Luke, in Thessalonica, Timothy. We'll come back to that. Paul and Silas step into the next town, Berea, and they pick up right where they left off. Among my favorite lines in the story, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These guys just don't miss a beat. They're not running away from Thessalonica because they're scared. They go into the synagogue of the Jews right off the bat. Back at it again. Let's go. They open up the scriptures. They explain that Christ had to die. Christ had to be raised from the dead. It's your only hope. They explain to them and demonstrate to them the love of God in Christ. And this, in verse 11, we see has a better response. The Bereans, unlike the Thessalonians, receive the word with readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so. As in Thessalonica, so even more so in Berea. The word of God works. By sharing the scriptures with one another, the Bereans are persuaded that Jesus is the Christ they need. That Jesus is the one crucified for their sins and raised again for their salvation. My friends, the Spirit and the Scriptures work together in sweet concert to bring about salvation of others. But notice also in verse 11, they search the Scriptures daily. Daily. It's the end of February. How's your Bible reading plan? Are you guys still on track? A few days behind? There is a daily searching of the scriptures that is truly profitable for the soul. How's family worship? How's your time one-on-one Bible reading with those around you? Are we sharing the scriptures with each other, believing that in them is the power of God for salvation? Are we serving the scriptures to one another? Believing that indeed in them the Spirit works to sanctify and to save. We see it. It happened in Thessalonica. It happened in Berea. That those who were willing to search the Scriptures found what they were looking for. We may sing again and again with that great Irish band, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. 
But I submit to you it is only because we have not looked in the Word of God. Here in the Bible we find what our souls are searching for. We find Jesus and the love of God in Christ. But those who hate Him, those who hate love, those who hate peace are determined to advance, determined to achieve, determined to destroy. The Jews from Thessalonica are not content to have run Paul and Silas out of town. Instead, they go to Berea, having learned that there the word of God is preached. They want those scriptures silenced. They want those men gone. And so they go and stir up the crowds in verse 13. They stir up the mob. And immediately the brethren do not wait for them to find them. In haste, they seize Paul and they race him off to the coast and stick him on a boat and send him down to Athens that he might be free, that he might be safe. But notice the breadcrumbs fall again. As this time, Silas is left behind in Berea. This time, Paul goes alone to Athens Which very often when you're reading through this text merely sets the stage in our mind for Paul's experience in Athens. But we must also look backward and see the significance of Paul leaving behind a piece of his team in every city. That there would be one there who would continue in the face of opposition to preach the gospel Continue to hand out the word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. Continue this program of renovation by which all in those cities are made new. In which Philippi will become a city of God and not of man. In which Thessalonica and Berea will transfer allegiance from the Roman Empire to the divine kingdom of Christ. There remains this heavenly messenger as a toehold, as a root in that community to bring forth the bubbling and boiling love of Christ until all that city is aflame with Christ and the knowledge of Christ. Here again in Berea, Silas is left. Paul from Athens calls to them. Let them come, he says, sending the command back in verse 15. With all speed, let them come. But it raises the question, why did they remain in the first place? Why did they stay? My friends, on this Lord's Day, I submit to you at least one reason. Because Jesus knows how to drop grace into your life. Because Jesus knows how to leave footsteps of love in your soul. Because Jesus knows how to give you just enough To keep you going. To build up his church. To advance his kingdom. I know we are weak. I know we are weary. I know we are tired. Or maybe it's just me. But Jesus knows how to get us through. He knows how to deliver us safe into heaven. He knows how to sanctify that spouse. How to save that child. How to bring salvation to that co-worker, that neighbor. And little drops of grace are left in your life to remind you of that truth. Why is the sun so gloriously beautiful today? 
Because there's a drop of love from the sky from your Father for you. Why is this bread and this cup set before you? Some of you saw this coming. Because here are the crumbs from your Father's table, sprinkled along the road of your life to remind you, I love you. No, you're not listening to me. I love you. And next month you come back to the table and he says, you're still not listening to me. I love you. And I will drag you with my love through every sin and every sorrow until you are safe in my arms in heaven at last. And he says it not to you merely as an individual believer. He says it to this congregation, which is why we partake together. Because here is for us the crumbs and the drops our soul needs. He loves you. He will make all things new. He will win. And so, my friends, let us share together these scriptures of love. Jesus makes all things new. So let us share his scriptures with one another. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this good news this morning. That the world is full of your grace. And that these scriptures are full of your love. And that this table is set with your mercy. That we this day might feast on the peace of our God. That that we, like the elders of old, might ascend the holy mountain and see God and eat and drink. We thank you, O God, that in the blood and under the blood of Christ, you do not lay your hands on us, but indeed welcome us with open arms. And you set us a seat at this table, and you serve to us the sweetness of our Savior. And you whisper, and you shout, I love you. O Father, let these doubting hearts today believe. And let these, O God, shivering minds find faith. That we, abounding in hurt and sin this hour, might have the great healing power of Jesus Christ poured into us as we hear this gospel and in a moment taste and see this gospel. We thank you for these things, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.